Okay, maybe we'll turn in our Bibles if we could to 1 Samuel chapter 12 is our portion. We have an escapee up here behind me. Yeah, that's good. Um, but before we do, let's do this. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. I want to show you, uh, most know, but some may not, that the, the advent of a king was predicted by a great prophet of the Old Testament named Moses. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14, and it says this, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me. This is 400 years before the scene that we're seeing laid before us now. 400 years, and a king... Was predicted. There were two. There were so there were questions that were given last week that I thought were very very interesting. One of the questions was who asked for the king, who assigned the king, and there are really two answers to that question. The people desired a king, and if we go to First Samuel chapter number eight, I want to go there and I'm going to show you because the only way we can do this properly is to have enough of the pieces of the puzzle to stick in the puzzle so that you can see the picture. So I'm going to be reviewing a little bit to bring us up to speed. If we just jumped into chapter 11 and 12, you'd say, well, where is the connectors? So chapter 8 gives us the desire of the people for a king. And it says this, and it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. This was a mistake. Now, the name of his first was Joel, and the second, uh, Abiah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not, that's a key word, not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted justice. In other words, they, they, they took money for the kind of judgments that people Wanted to see. And all the elders of Israel gathered together themselves and came unto Samuel, unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like the nations. So when you ask the question, Who desired the king? you could say, The people desired the king. And then you could go over to the, uh, the 10th chapter, uh, verse 24, and you'll find out that God also condoned the king. Verse 7 says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not re- uh, rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. This is the situation that Israel had. I want you to hear this because this is very important. When they went out to battle, they had a king. It was the immortal, invisible, all-powerful, wise God. Now, if you were going out to battle and, and you wanted somebody to lead you, would it not be an advantage if your general, the one who's leading you, is invisible. Hmm. How about immortal? Throw a spear. Sing a spear. 
He doesn't die. And you can't see him. What about all wise? Well, if you want to strategize as far as military is concerned, we want to strategize and figure out what we're going to do in this case. Are we going to flank? Are we going to do all these terms I know nothing of? You have the all-wise king. Immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now you can understand why God was just a little disappointed with their choice to have a king. There were times when the nation of Israel went out to battle and they didn't have to lift a finger. There was one point where he said, listen, you take the majority of these people, send them home. Let them make a real nice meal at home and and they can have a real nice warm meal at home while the battle is going on. He said, I'm going to take these 300 and I'm going to do battle for you. Well, those 300 probably thought, oh boy, we're in for it here. And he gave him a clay pot, and he gave him a light, and he gave him a trumpet, and he said, now we're going to battle. All they did was blow a trumpet and break a vessel. Now, let me tell you, folks, that's the king I want when I'm going to battle. And that's the king that they had. You can understand the disappointment. When they ask, like the other nations, for a king. He was already their king. He was already their general. You couldn't kill him. You couldn't outwise him. You couldn't do anything against this, this king. You couldn't even see him. And he led them into battle. I want us to understand a principle that goes on here because we can isolate ourselves from this whole scene. We can say, well, yes, that was then and this is now. And, 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 and it, you know, that applied to them, but that really doesn't apply to me. Oh, would you be wrong? How much is the Lord Jesus Christ asking you to go battle with him? And we're choosing rather what we see to go to battle. That which we can grasp onto. We feel more comfortable that way. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, come, we'll do battle for the kingdom, just me and you. And you'll be able to stand back in your lifetime and and, and see the victories, not your victories. You're going to be able to see the victories of God Almighty working in your life time and time again. And you're going to be marveling every time it happens. What a way to live. What a way to live. You know, sometimes we just, we sit around, I'm bored. I have, I I can't figure out what life's all about. I'm so bored. This is so mundane. It's so ridiculous. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, come walk with me. I'll show you what life's all about. And yet we say, give me a king. Give me a king. And oftentimes we end up taking as our king ourselves what a disappointment what an absolute disaster i'm talking to believers in lord jesus christ now we take ourselves we begin to 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 work out things in our own intellect in our own feelings become the driving force behind everything we do exactly what the nation of israel did when we say give us a king like all the other nations 
around us. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, now hear it, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And that's why we run around frustrated. I'm so sick of life. It, there's nothing. It's the same old thing every day every, because you haven't found your life in Christ yet. When we find our life in Christ, we realize we, we dethrone self as king and we put the real king on the throne that deserves to be there. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ because he died in our place. He died in our place. He deserves to be our king. Chapter number 9 and verse 2. And I'm just piecing together. I'm just piecing together what is transpiring here. Chapter number 9 and verse 2. It says this. And he had a son. This is Kish. He had a son whose name was Saul. A choice young man. And a goodly. Not, not godly. I wish it would say godly. It would be great if it did. But it says goodly. And a goodly. Uh, a son. And a, a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier we got goodlier person than he from his shoulders and upward. He was higher than any of the people. Now, I want you to notice what it amplifies here when it says goodly. I mean, we could use a lot of we could plug the word goodly and do a lot of things, couldn't we? But what it amplifies is what is in the last part of that verse, his physical stature. This was a man of, of dominant physical stature. He says from the shoulders above, he was larger than any man. That would put him at about either seven feet or six feet six, between six feet six and seven feet tall. Now, that's one big Jew. That's one big Jew. I mean, they, want to, they could have started a basketball team with Saul. You know, let's, let's pick up a basketball team. They're not known for their height. But here we have a man that stood head and shoulders above others. And it seems to be the thing that's amplified Every time it brings about his qualifications, that he's a big man, that he's a big man. That's what the people desired. I say he's a goodly man, but the Bible never says he was a godly man. Now listen to this. Verse 18 of, verse, of chapter number 9 says this. Then Saul drew near. This gives us a little clue. It gives us a little insight, a little clue as to what this man was all about. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. In other words, what it's saying is he was right there in the very presence of Samuel, the mouthpiece of God for this nation of Israel, and he did not even recognize him. He didn't even know him. Now, let me tell you, if you were were in the nation of Israel, you should know who Samuel was. He did not. So that gives us a, a, a little bit of clue as to who this man is. Chapter 10 and verse number 2. After he is anointed king, and this is a private anointing of king, Samuel gives Saul a private anointing, and there are three signs given. These are not just willy-nilly signs like, I love that when people say, oh, I don't know whether to marry this person. Uh, uh, it, now, if I wake up tomorrow morning and I breathe, I know it's God's will to marry him. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
No, these were very specific signs that were given. Even the last sign when the prophets were dancing, it names the instruments that they were playing. Very specific. So he knew that this was of God. This was of God. That's where some of the the mystery comes in. And that's verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. We give those signs in that particular portion. And then verse number 10. It says this, And when they came thither, To the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. Now, this is going to throw us a little here. He prophesied. Wow. Well, it's a mystery. We can't know why God did this. But I want you to see the response of the people, it gives us a little more clue as to who this man Saul is. The latter part of verse number 12 in chapter 10 says this, Therefore it became a proverb, Saul also is among the prophets. Why did that become a proverb? Why was that kind of a chant in the nation? Remember, there's a chant over in 1 Samuel chapter 18 where it says, David hath killed his ten thousands and Saul his thousands. So he was part of a number of Proverbs. I believe the reason why that became a proverb is because he was known as being so godless. The people were in absolute awestruck that this man actually prophesied. And they made a proverb of it. Huh, look at this. Even, even Saul... Even Saul prophesies. I think that's the, the bend or the tilt of that particular verse. Saul never looked to the Lord. And the farther he got into his reign as king, the more Saul looked to Saul. And the more depressed Saul became. Verse 21. I'm skipping through now. I'm just just hitting the high spots here, trying to put enough pieces together. When we had caused uh, when he had caused the tribes of Benjamin to come near uh, by their families, the family of uh, Matri, and taken the, the uh, and Saul the son of Kish was taken. And when they sought him, they could not find him. Now, you say to yourself, "Well, this is a small thing." Well, let me ask you this. Let me challenge you with this: Why was it put in the Word of God? If it's a small thing, why was it included in the word of God? In other words, there was the, the, the uh, public coronation of the king. He was going to bring the tribes together and he was going to say, this is to be your king. The other was a private. When he anointed Saul, it was a private matter. But it needed to be brought to the attention of the whole nation now that they realize that this is your king. And when they did this, they went and looked for Saul and he could not be found. Now, like I say, you say, well, that, just, well that, that stuff can happen. Sure, it can happen. But I'll bet you if it just happened and there was no intent from the Scripture, it wouldn't be in the Scripture. But it is in the Scripture, isn't it? Verse 22. Now, I'm going to go a little further here. A little more evidence 
of what's going on here. It says, therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. In other words, where's Saul? What, what, we're, we're coronating the king and we have everything here. All the nations have gathered together. All the tribes have gathered together. We're missing our king. That's what they're saying. And it says, uh, uh, behold. Oh, it says, and the Lord answered. Now, I want you to realize that. And the Lord answered. Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. Kind of humiliating for your king, isn't it? Why does the Bible say this? Because the whole point was that they had taken this man and, and, and elevated him because of his physical stature. But he had no real relationship with the God of heaven. And the God of heaven was amplifying the fact that he had no real relationship with himself. Oh, you'll find him. He's hid among the stuff. But then verse 24. Now I want you to see this. This is where the mystery comes in. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen strange indeed now let me give you an explanation that I feel could be as to why this was the way it was you say wait a second the people chose Saul for his physical stature they wanted a king to rule over them like the other nations around them and yet it says that God chose Saul let me give you an illustration my son's I have four of them. Let's say that uh, my son comes to me and he says, uh, Dad, I would like to start a such and such, and I think this would be a great idea. And uh, uh, what do you think? Now, when I hear it, I think that is the most ludicrous, lame brain, ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. But he's young. Now, I could take my son and I could pound him over the head and say, nope, nope, it's not good for you. I've been with you since your, your birth, and I know better. It's not good for you. Or there's another option. I could realize that maybe God has a lesson in view in this circumstance. And let me tell you, this happened with the four sons many, many times over again. Okay? So God may have something in view. God may have a lesson that needs to be taught. And so I allow that son to go forward with that. It's a fairly harmless thing. Now, if my eight-year-old son came to me and said, Dad, uh, I have an opportunity as a snake tamer. Well, you know, logic says you're not going to avoid that, right? We don't want an eight-year-old snake tamer. But, but it may be something in their life that God is going to use to grow them, make them closer to the name of Christ. Now, they're going to fall. Are they going to fall on their face? Are they going to get their, their face drowned in the mud? Yes, they are. But sometimes we as parents can say, no, 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 no. And pretty soon our son's just standing there. Can't move. Sometimes you've got to say yes. Even though you know the outcome, it's just not going to end very well. So you let him go. And by that experience, they grow. Is it possible that this is exactly what may have taken place here? God said to Samuel on numerous occasions, let him go. 
Let them have their king. Sometimes you just got to let them step in it a little bit for them to realize just how dangerous it can be. So the Lord hath chosen. <clears throat> Verse 24. And then our, our, our passages for today, and I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to, and a little more timely than, than usual. I'm not promising anything. Please. That doesn't always happen. But I'm going to try anyway. Uh, chapter 11. We have this name, man named Nahash. Now, Nahash, his name means serpent. Now, you, you got a little boy. you got your lovely little boy. He just got born, and you decided to name him serpent. I don't know. Can't figure that one out. You know, it's like putting the kid on the wrong foot to begin with. But that's what his name meant. His name meant serpent Nahash. And it says in verse number 1 of chapter 11, Then Nahash, the Ammonite. These Ammonites had been dealt with by the judges way back in the book of Judges. They had been pounded down. But there was this place called Jabesh-Gilead. It was on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay? So, so what was happening is we had this break-off of Israel, this little fragmented break-off of Israel that, were, that planted themselves on the east side of of the Jordan River. And here comes Nahash. And Nahash, it says, he made a covenant with us. Uh, excuse me, it says, and all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. In other words, they were overwhelmed by the power of Nahash's army. And they knew that they hadn't a chance as far as defeating this particular army. This is not a good scene over here, okay? This little break-off of Israel that was on the east side of the Jordan River, this was not a, a very good scene at all. Their response was not very godly at all. Were they looking to the God of heaven? And by looking to the God of heaven, are there any limits to their abilities? Well, it's quite obvious that they were not looking to the God of heaven, even in one small measure, because they basically saw the, 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 uh, the armed forces of Nahash lined out in front of them and said, we give up. Let's make a covenant. Well, that was strictly forbidden for the nation of Israel to do that. So they, they were off base all the way on this thing. Let's just make a covenant. So Nahash says, no problem, we'll make a covenant. It says Nahash, verse number two, Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition... Will I make a covenant with you that I may thrust out your right eye? Well, it's, that's, that's a tough condition, isn't it? I mean, if they would have said, you know, uh, you're going to pay a certain taxes the rest of your life. It's going to be a very heavy tax. They might have gone for this. But they said, what we want you to do is thrust out your right eye. So basically, you can't do battle because your shield uh, would then be uh, in the way all the time. You've only got one eye. Not a good thing for battle. Okay? But it is a good thing for work. You can still work. And that's what Nahash wanted. He wanted them as their slaves. So you can still work, but you can't battle. So that's why he had that little thing. Now, obviously, that, that, that's not very good terms to go by. I, I never recommend that. If they want to poke out your right eye, don't do it. Okay? It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And then it says in verse 3, And the elders of Jabesh said unto them, Give us seven days. This is weird, too. It says, Give us Seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of it. It makes it as though they told. 
Nahash what they were going to do. That we would send messengers to all the coasts of Israel, and then if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Why did Nahash do this? Why didn't he just say no? 24 hours, you're done. Well, first of all, that was a, it, was, it was a good journey to go across the Jordan River over in the east, uh, over, yeah, over in the west, excuse me, west, as they traveled. It was a good journey. And I think that possibly Nahash just had so much confidence in himself that he felt like he could take on the whole, the whole let's get the whole thing. I think there's one factor that maybe Nahash did not know. is That is the factor of Saul. He did not know that they had a king. Not that it really mattered because God was basically their king. And so they, they went about and they, uh, they sent messengers over and the messengers had tears coming out of their eyes. And they began to explain the circumstances over there. And then in verse number six, it says this. And the, now listen, I want you to hear this. This is strange stuff. And the spirit of God came upon Saul. What, what is that all about? Well, we have examples, as, as Malcolm pointed out, we have examples in the New Testament where people did miracles, they did works of God, and yet they knew not God. Absolutely did not know God. But God was not going to leave Saul completely without weaponry in this situation. And, and so what God did is he, he went out and he got the best 50 millimeter guns that there were available in the whole land. And he got them the best swords and he got them the best bows and he got them all the armament. He really loaded. No, he didn't do that, did he? He gave their leader the spirit of God. Isn't that strange? Now, if you were going into battle and you weren't really arrayed real well for battle, the nation of Israel was spread out all over the place. Saul had to go and find them and, and basically tell them that they had to come and help. Uh, so they, they weren't really arrayed perfectly for battle. That's what you'd want. You'd want to be arrayed for battle. Give me the, the equipment. And what it says is that Saul got a dose of the Spirit of God. And then verse 11, we'll skip up. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people into three companies, and they came into the midst of the hosts of the, uh, in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. So God gave Saul... A great coronation present. This unbelievable victory over these Ammonites. And then the people came to Saul and they said, Well, now, those descenders, those people who said, We don't want Saul to reign over us as king. They probably knew something, didn't they? You need to gather them up and we're going to kill them right now. All people were on Saul's side now. They were all gathered unto Saul now. Saul says something very, very interesting in, in verse number 12 of chapter 11. And it says this. Who is that said, shall Saul reign over us? In other words, anyone who said it was against him reigning over us, bring the men that they may be put 
to death. And Saul said, There shall not one man be put to death that day, for for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Even Saul, who had no real relationship with, with, with the God of Israel, he recognized there was something supernatural going on here. And he gave credit where credit was due. He said the salvation was brought on by the Lord. Now we're going to find out in the, in the chapters to come. After chapter 12, you're going to find out it's, it's all downhill from there. Chapter number 12, though, let's begin as we go through this. We've got to go through this very quickly. And it says this, And Samuel said unto Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that you said unto me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walketh before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before and 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 have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Now, there, there, I've read a couple of commentaries, and I would have never caught this on my own because I'm not that smart. But a couple of commentaries caught the fact that the language might seem to indicate, I'm saying might seem to indicate, that when uh, uh, the, 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 the fact that his sons had fallen away, that his sons were not following after their father, it might have been rectified by Daddy Samuel. That might be what this means. Because what it might be saying is this. My sons are walking with you. They're no longer on any kind of a platform. They're no longer in any kind of a special position. They are no longer judges over Israel. They are now with you. In other words, Samuel might have well been saying at this particular point, I dealt with it, something Eli did not do. And Eli paid. Eli paid. We're not doing. You've got to realize that Samuel grew up with that whole circumstance with Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. He grew up with that whole circumstances. And there's, there's always a complete open view when we look at circumstances uh, from the outside looking in. When we're in those circumstances, sometimes we have these, these blinders on. There's these scales that, that build up on our eyes and we just can't see our own faults. Eli could not see the fault in leaving his sons, who were absolute scoundrels in the priesthood. And so Samuel saw that all that time, and I'm sure that it grieved his heart, but there's a good chance that he dealt with the issue and got it right, took them out as judges. Samuel, three different offices, prophet, judge, and I believe priest. Very unique man. Very unique man as we still as we see it going forth. And then he begins to give his own testimony. Now, this is not this is not it cannot be uh, uh, taken as somebody who is boastful. He's uh, blowing his own trumpet, so to speak. Look at me. Look at me. I something. This is a man who from his childhood all the way through to his gray haredness. He may have been 60, 70 years, I don't know, all the way through. He was faithful to the nation of Israel. And he was out to protect the character and the reputation that he had established. Now, that wasn't his main goal. His main goal was to serve the nation of Israel, to serve the nation of Israel. And he did it happily. 
all his life. He says in verse 3, Behold, here am I, witnessed against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Now, you've got to remember, an ox is a big deal then because we, we learned a lot about oxes in First Samuel. They, they, an ox, without an ox, you're dead. You're done. If you had a farmer and you took away his tractor, he's done. So an ox is a big deal. And that's why Samuel, uh, uh, Saul actually, uh, uh, he threatened the nation of Israel in gathering them. And he took an ox and he cut it up in pieces. And he sent the pieces out to the various tribes. And he said, you either come gather with me against the Ammonites or I will cut up your ox. Now that's interesting. That's an interesting thing. That he does not say, I will kill you. But he did not say that. So an ox is very, very valuable. And he's saying here, whose ox have I taken? Uh, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or whose hand have I received a bribe? They'd seen enough of that. In fact, that was the catalyst that caused the nation of Israel to want a king. That was one of the major... There was a lot of other things. They, they wanted to be like all the other nations. We don't want to trust in God anymore. We want to be like the other nations. That's true. But the catalyst that they cite is the fact that, look at your sons. They're not walking the way you did. And so they said, give us a king. So whom have I defrauded, um, bribed to blind mine eyes thereof, and I will restore it. And he meant it. He meant it. And they said, thou hast defrauded us Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And so the reputation of Samuel, let me tell you, there's a little bit of human, there's a little bit of human comes out in Samuel here. And you can't really stick a a, a blaming finger at him. He had cast his life from the very youngest of a child all the way through his life serving this nation. And what he saw was the fact that they said, okay, no more Samuel. We don't want you anymore. We want a king. That's pretty hard. That's pretty hard to handle. And so he begins to rehearse this. Now, Samuel's part to play in the nation of Israel would not end here. He would take on the other hat called a prophet. He was already a prophet, but he would take on the, the, the hat of a prophet of the first king. There were prophets that followed the kings all the way through. He was the first, you see. So his, his place was not lost. Let's skip down to verse number 14 for a sake of time. And if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord. Then shall both ye and also the kings that reign over you continue following the Lord your God. Now, I want you to understand that, that he said, okay, have your king. Have your king. But if you continue to look to the Lord, that king is fallible, fallible, Fallible. When the when the when the uh, uh, when Israel split into two, there were ten tribes that went one direction, and there wasn't one good king in the whole bunch. They were fallible kings. Saul was the the epitome of infallible. He was he was uh, fallible. He was a mess, is what he was, and that's what they had chosen for their king. So the bottom line is, 
Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord. And the Lord in all his grace and mercy is still saying, I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to bless you. Even though you've disobeyed me. Even though by choosing a king, it says in the word of God, by choosing a king, it's an evil. It's an evil. Wow, that's a strong word. I'm still going to bless you. You just look to me. You just look to me. That's a merciful and loving God. I'll tell you, I would have squished him like a grape. I would have, you, 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 look at, he said, he said to Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. That's what God the Father said. They're rejecting me. I would have squished him like a grape. That's it. God is merciful. His love never ends. Verse 16. And therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. And it was the wheat harvest. And during the wheat harvest, that's uh, May and June, about, about, about now, there is no rains. There is no storms. And so he makes that, he says, during the wheat harvest for a very good reason. Because it's going to amplify the miracle that God is going to do. I will call upon the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain that they may perceive and see that your wickedness is great. Now he's going to identify that wickedness. Which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. Makes it very, very flat out. And so Samuel went to the Lord and there was a great thunderstorm. Now, we're not talking about the normal thunderstorms around here. They're pretty bad. We've got, this is a thunder capital of the world right here. There's a lot of thunder. There's a lot of lightning. There's a lot of things. But this was way beyond that. Way beyond that. And verse 22. Um, Let's go to verse uh, 19. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants. Unto the Lord thy God. Now, I want you to see why God did this. I, I believe. You could, you could search it out for yourself. But I believe this is why God did this. There was a thunderstorm. There was lightning pounding. There was rain. And it was just unbelievable to the point where they feared for their own lives. And they said, Samuel, pray to God for us. Pray, sounds like when they went to Moses, you know. Pray to God for us, Moses. It was the same scene. Pray to God for us. And they said, uh, pray and, and call for Saul. Oh, did they? No. They didn't do that, did they? Pray to the Lord. I think the Lord wanted to hear that. They were looking... To a king, and and they had their their little hearts just set on this big physical specimen, and he's going to write things, and he's going to be our general, and he's going to lead us in battle, and he's going to crush our enemies. He's the man, and God said, "I'm going to send a thunderstorm so great, you're not going to cry for Saul. You're going to cry reality." And they did. Cry to the Lord. Cry to the Lord. I think the God of heaven, the God of Israel, just wanted to hear their cry. One more time. And they cried to the Lord. That's even what the pagan does, isn't it? Circumstances, thunderstorms, lightnings that come down, and and life begins to pound us to smithereens. And even the pagan's going to say, Oh God, aren't they? 
They cry their roots. They cry their beginnings. Oh, God. Why don't they cry, oh, stock market. Please deliver me. So, God. God loves to hear that. Oh, God. Don't let it be a thunderstorm only. When you decide whether you're going to go this direction or go that direction, cry, oh God, oh, he loves to hear it. Absolute dependence and a vital walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to find out what life is all about. You're not going to feel that absolute frustration way down in the center of your heart thinking, man, this is so sick. All I do every day is... We can walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can live with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can have the Lord Jesus Christ living in us. Then there's fulfillment. There's joy. And there's peace. There's peace. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. I want you to see that. For His great name's sake. Oh, that we live for His great name's sake. Oh, that we walk for His great name's sake. Oh, that we move and breathe and, and interact with other human beings for His great name's sake. It'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you exist in this earth. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for the Word of God, which is living and active. It moves us, our Father. We thank you for it. Oh, how lost we be. Just meandering through this world, no direction, no purpose, no nothing. Our Father, make us more like Christ for His great namesake. It's in His name we do pray. Amen. Amen.